Exodus 33, we'll be at the beginning at about verse 18. And tonight's study is just good. It's just really good. And you'll see why in a few minutes. I want to begin by reading a quote. I don't know if any of you have read the book by Packard called Knowing God. It's a a great work. And he starts out at the beginning of the book. He he says the following. He says, On January 7th, 1855, the young 20-year-old minister of New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, England, opened his morning sermon as follows. The highest science, the loftiest speculation... The mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It's a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinite, in infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise But he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday, and I know nothing. C.H. Spurgeon spoke those words 150 years ago, and they ring so true today. That the the science, the thinking, that the whole whole work of going in and, and studying the nature and the name of God is overwhelming. And when we actually pause long enough to do so, we recognize how little we know, how vast He is, and how we are nothing without Him. Moses stood before God and said, Show me your glory. And as we talked about on Sunday, when he said, Show me your glory, he was asking that God would show him more of Himself. Show me more of yourself, God. I want to know you better. I want to be closer to you. That was at the heart of his request, that he might know more of God. Now, you may ask the question, how do we know this to be true? I mean, are we just kind of guessing what was on Moses' mind, what was in his heart? We can know this to be true because of how God responded to Moses' request. Look at Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, God responded, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. See, God's response tells us something of his understanding of Moses' request. If Moses was just asking for a flash in the pan, for an exciting experience, for a momentary event, God wouldn't have had to say anything. He wouldn't have said, I'll make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim my name to you. He would have just gone, glory. And Moses would have seen it, been blown away, and it would have been done with. But God knew on the heart of Moses what Moses wanted to know, what we all want to know is more of God, to get closer to God, to understand Him better, to to see more of His nature. And so God says a couple of things right off the bat. He says, I'll I'll show you my goodness and I'm going to proclaim my name. You want to know me, Moses? We'll start with my goodness. My goodness. Now, without getting too heady or theological, the bottom line here, the word good in the Hebrew is the word tub. Tub. T-U-B in our transliteration. And it just means good. I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. Well, what is your goodness, God? It's just good. It's just intrinsically good. God in very nature. 
is good. Now that may seem simple. It may not be, you know, touching to the heights of great theology, but we need to understand that. From time to time, we miss that fact. God is by nature good. The psalmist writes, Psalm 145, verse 6, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. God is good, and we need to know this. Well, why do we need to know that? Isn't that kind of an obvious one, especially for us Christians? Well, you'd think so. Except that so many people have a Greek mentality of God. A Zeus mentality. You know the Greek god Zeus. The whole mythology about how Zeus sits up on high and he plays with and he toys with human beings. And I have even heard Christians talk about the Lord in such a manner. That he's toying with me. He's messing with me. If God wants my marriage to succeed, I mean, maybe he wants to mess it up. I don't know, but you know, I, I just whatever he's going to do here. God just, you know, this morning I got out of the car when started. I thought, Lord, what are you doing with me here? God is good. He is intrinsic goodness. Cheryl and I were watching the other night Seinfeld. And I'm still a big fan. And we were watching the uh, end of the fourth season. It was the episode called The Pilot. And in this episode, George and Jerry are going to, they pitched a pilot to NBC. And so they're actually on board. It looks like it's going to happen. And George is talking to his therapist about this situation. And success is something George does not want. And he says to his therapist, I don't want to be successful. And she's trying to understand. And he says, listen, I know when everything's going just right, God's going to come and take it all away from me. And the therapist says, I thought you didn't believe in God. And George says, oh, I believe in him for the bad stuff. (laughs) And yet, is that not how so many people relate to God? When the bad things happen, when the hurricanes hit, what do they call it? An act of God. When there's an earthquake and thousands die, it's an act of God. That's an actual insurance claim. This insurance company does not cover acts of God. Well, that's probably good because they can't even cope with who God is. God is good. God is not in the business of just wreaking havoc on earth just for fun. Playing around with our lives, making life difficult for us. Now, wait a minute, Rick. Last week, didn't you say something about how, you know, godly sorrow leading to repentance? How it will do things that will drive us to repentance? Yes, because God has the ultimate good in mind. He is good. Romans 8.28, a very familiar verse, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now listen to this. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. We talked about that on Sunday. The glorification process of God. We're all in that process. We say, show me your glory. And God goes, I am. Bit by bit, I'm working it out in your life. I am creating and and expressing glory in you. Even when we don't know what's going on, God is good. His intentions for us, good. And so the very first thing he says to Moses, I'm going to pass by. You know what I'm going to show you, Moses? I'm going to show you my goodness. My goodness. My goodness. Now the Lord also said, Moses, you want to see my glory? I will proclaim my name. The name of the Lord. I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord before you. That seems like an odd thing to say. Someone says to me, Rick, I'd just like to get to know you better. And I say, okay, Rick. (laughs) But you see, there's so much that is bound up in the name of God. The name, Yahweh. 
It's the name that Moses already heard back in Exodus chapter 3. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we're going to look at how God proclaims his name in a moment. But you need to do you need to remember this, Bible students, especially the, the Hebrew in the Hebrew, the name indicated something important about a person. It indicated their nature. It wasn't just a calling card like names are so often for us today, but the names indicated the nature of the person. When parents chose a name for their son or their daughter, it was precise, it was on purpose, it was to point out the nature of the son or the daughter. And God is no exception. In fact, God is the rule when it comes to the name expressing the nature. But he goes on to say something else here. Verse 19, the last part, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Now, hang on for just a second. Because sometimes we read scripture and we come to a little, you know, a couple sentences like that. And we think, oh, that's nice. And we move right on, not understanding what the context is for it. Why is God saying this here? Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'm going to show you my goodness and I'm going to proclaim my name to you. But Moses, listen, understand this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. What's he saying? He's saying, Moses, listen, you've asked a great thing, but it is only because I am compassionate. It is only because I am merciful that you are going to get to know me better. It's only because I have chosen to show these things to you. I don't just do this for anyone. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Compassion on whom I will have compassion. And in this case, Moses, I'm going to let you know more of me. I'm going to let you draw closer to me. In other words, Moses, you can't know me without me. You can't figure out who I am without me taking the time to express myself to you. In other words, the revelation of God is intentional. It's intentional. God decides, He determines, He intends to reveal Himself to whom He intends to reveal Himself. We all do that. I mean, we decide who our friends are going to be. We decide as we meet and greet people and get to know people, those who we're going to really let in. Those who are going to see the internal workings of our lives. Those who are going to see us, you know, as it were with our sins hanging out. Those who, who we feel like we're safe with. And they understand us and we understand them. We make those decisions. But here's a wonderful thought. God chooses you. God intends for you to know Him. He chose you for that very purpose. Well, He goes on and says, Okay, Moses, I'm going to do this because I want you to know me. Verse 20 says, But you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. No man can see me and live. Again, last week we talked a little bit about that, what that means and and, and what's indicated there. But I've been thinking more about this through the whole week. And it hit me that though we can know God in ever-increasing ways, we will never fully know God. We can't possibly take Him in. We can't possibly ever really know Him. John Walbert said people can truly know God, but they can never truly know Him exhaustively. And that's a wonderful thing. Because if you think about it, in the world in which we live, discovery is beginning to wane. I mean, pretty much there are no new continents to discover. There may be maybe an island or two. We can certainly search the ocean, search the stars, search the human body for discoveries. But it's getting thin. We've done a lot of discovering in the world. Eternity, gang, is going to be one big, massive journey of discovery. We will never tire of learning about God, of of knowing more of God. He is so vast, so wonderful, so exhaustive that we we can't 
finished. This is a journey, a, a treasure hunt, if you will, that will never end. People say, oh, eternity just sounds boring to me. Sitting around in a cloud with a halo on my head. Those are the people whose halos are going to be a little too tight and complaining about it, you know. The reality is eternity is going to blow this life away. And a big part of that is because we're going to be with God. We're going to be getting to know Him in ways that we can't possibly. You know those moments where you just, you want to know Him better. Maybe you're praying and you're just going, God, if I could just understand more of what you're doing here. If I could just see more of your nature. If I could just grasp a little more. I I just don't feel like I really know you the way I want to. You will. But you will more and more and more. And eternity is going to be full of getting to know God. And I believe it's going to be awesome. And I believe eternity will not be long enough to truly know the Father. But Hebrews 1.3 tells us something wonderful. Jesus is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Jesus is that representation of God and I believe when we get to heaven, when we are with Jesus, He is going to be the center of our attention throughout eternity we're just going to keep going back to Jesus going back to Jesus to know him to understand him better well with Jesus in mind read on verse 21 the Lord then said behold there is a place by me literally with me there's a place with me and you shall stand on the rock oh Rick you missed a word there you missed the word there (laughs) the word there isn't there actually And a little hint, and you're going to see this importantly a little bit later on tonight, but any word that's in italics is not in the original translation. It was added for the flow of the sentence. In most translations, anyway. In New American Standard, King James, I think several others. If it's in italics, it wasn't there. It was added so you could read it better. But the Lord said, Behold, there's a place with me, by me, and you shall stand on the rock. On the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, so God says, here's the deal, Mo. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to proclaim my goodness. I'm going to protect you and then I'm going to remove my hand and you're going to see my back. My back, my achor in the Hebrew. A-C-H-O-R, achor. It means my afterward. That which is left over. You can't deal with the full, the full expression of who I am. So I'm going to go by and you're going to see my, literally my afterglow. You're going to see the remnant of my glory. We've had experiences like that right here in this barn. We've had Sundays when the worship was just so good and we were so caught up and we didn't want to leave. And there were those times, there have been a few of them where, where we kind of said, okay, if you want to leave, go ahead, we're going to stay here and just keep worshiping for a while because we were experiencing the afterglow of the glory of God when He passes by and suddenly we're caught up in that afterglow, the afterward, God's back. We just kept playing because we couldn't stop. Why couldn't we stop? Well, it was something that couldn't be contrived. Why don't we do it every week? Again, because you don't contrive the glory of God. You know? Well, I guess we could. We could tack on an extra half hour to worship every week and it would become rote. We wait for the Spirit to reveal Himself. When the Spirit wants to reveal Himself. How the Spirit wants to reveal Himself. And then we get to be caught in the afterglow of His glory. But again, God speaking to Moses, He says, You can't know me face to face. I've got to protect you here. I've got to put you in a safe place for my glory even to pass by because if you saw me in my real glory, I'd blow you right in the kingdom come. You couldn't handle it, Moses. 
So I'll I'll let you experience my afterglow. But there's only one way for this to work. Only one way truly, even to experience the afterglow of God's glory. You have to be in the cleft of the rock. That is, in the rock that was cleft. Psalm 18.2 The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my rock in whom I take refuge. Isaiah 44.8 Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4 The rock is Christ. The rock is Christ. Which means, my friends, that any time that God is referred to as the rock in the Old Testament, we're talking about Christ. When I talk about the rock, you know, currently it's in the movies and stuff here, it's a different rock. He just named himself. Jesus is the rock that was cleft. Moses has to be hidden in the cleft of the rock, and there's a beautiful picture here that Jesus is the rock that was cleft. His back was torn. His hands and his feet were pierced. His side was speared. And we need to understand that that's the only way to experience and see God's glory is to be in the rock. To be in Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way to draw close to the Father or to experience His glory but to be in the rock who is Jesus. And by the way, that's where I plan to be when He comes in His glory. Surrounded by His glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? So, God makes his promise to Moses. I'm going to show you my glory, Moses, the backside of it as I pass by. Now, verse 1 of chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he cut two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. Be ready by morning, Moses. They're having this conversation, you may recall, in the tent of meeting. Not the tabernacle, but the tent of meeting that Moses sets up outside of the camp. Moses goes out to that tent of meeting and the people come out to him from time to time. They come out to see the Lord, to inquire of the Lord out there. And so Moses is talking all this time with the Lord at the tent of meeting. And God says, okay, I'm going to do all these things. But tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning be ready. And come on up the mountain in the morning. I think it's interesting, the work of God often happens in the morning. Every day of creation was completed in the morning. You remember Genesis 1-5 and and on through that entire chapter, there was evening and there was morning one day. God finished each day in the morning. And Psalm 5, verse 3, the psalmist cries, cries out, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. And prophetically, Prophetically, Isaiah quotes Jesus saying in Isaiah 50 verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And of course you recall Jesus' resurrection was in the morning. God often does his work in the morning. 
But why I'm mentioning this and what caught my attention here is how God told Moses to be ready in the morning, to come up in the morning. It's the very difference in how the children of God see things versus how the children of the world see things. You see, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 tells us, You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. What is Paul saying? He's saying it shouldn't take you by surprise when Jesus comes. Be ready in the morning. Eyes wide open. Be looking for Him. He's coming again. Jesus said, keep watch. Be ready in the morning. Now Moses, Moses in righteous indignation had smashed the original Ten Commandments. You remember he came down the mountain. He had talked God down a little bit. The Lord was really angry and just wanted to crush the people. And Moses said, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Let them off here. And, and Moses goes down the mountain. And the moment he sees them, he becomes incensed. He chucks the commandments, shatters them all over the ground, which makes a lot of sense for that was what they were doing, shattering the commandments all over the ground themselves. But this is incredible to me. God says, come on up with two stone tablets. I'm going to rewrite the commandments for you. And I think with the first, the original ten, do you realize those original commandments and the tablets themselves were wrought by God? Moses didn't cut out the original tablets. God did. God formed them. God crafted them. And then God wrote on them. Exodus 32.16 tells us the tablets were God's work. And the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. What a loss to archaeology. Think about it. It's the one thing... The one thing in history that the hand of God the Father touched and put on earth, aside from you know, creation itself, but the Ten Commandments on those original tablets, what a find that would be if, if we had them. And people, interestingly, have, have searched and questioned and guessed as to the location of the replacement tablets for thousands of years. They've been looking for them. Where are the Ten Commandments? I can tell you. I happen to have a little insight. I know right where the Ten Commandments are. Would you like to know? They're in the Ark of the Covenant. That's right. Where's that? I don't know. But they're in the Ark. So find the Ark, and you've got the commandments right there. But let me ask you a question. Would the finding or the discovery of the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments contained therein, would that increase your faith? Would that make you believe in God more? With the discovery of Noah's Ark intact with maybe giraffe bones nearby, would that blow you away to the point where you go, wow, now I really believe in God. See, it's interesting. The original commandments were smashed because of faithlessness. And that's the point. The Lord desires faith in His people. Not facts. Not that we believe because, okay, we've finally just been proven. The reality is, If you want to believe in God, I can prove Him to you. If you don't want to believe in God, every piece of evidence I lay before you is not going to bring you to faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul said, Before faith came, see, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And the Bible is clear on this. The law, the tablets, that that immediate experience of God right there doing what He did is not as good as faith is. Jesus says, hey, you can see all day long. Is a paraphrase. 
You know, believing because you see, well, that's one thing. But when you believe and you have not seen, oh, that's awesome. That's faith. And that's what God wants to teach us. We've talked about it, the language of eternity. We learn the language of faith, learn to live by faith and in faith, trusting that God does know what He's doing. That God does know the medical bills that are coming before you do. That God does understand the financial crisis that is looming before you even knew it was going to happen. That God does have a handle on your food, on your family, on your house, on your cars, on all that stuff that is so unimportant but that He takes care of. Remember His goodness. He wants us to trust Him. To have faith. A faith that is, that is good news. The weight of the law replaced by the freedom of faith. Okay, see, now Moses has a heavy burden. He has to carve up these two new stone tablets and he has to carry these tablets up the mountain. As we talked about on Sunday, it's a picture of redemption, carrying those heavy, burdensome tablets up the mountain, carrying them up there to receive forgiveness from the Lord for the people and coming back with redemption on his lips. But he had to carry them up the mountain in the morning. And verse 5 going on tells us, he goes up, he's on the mountain now, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And we're going to talk about this on Sunday, but isn't that interesting? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. So, little hint as to what we're going to talk about. Moses is standing there, and the Lord is going to cover him up in the rock, in the cleft, and his glory is going to pass by. But while that's happening, guess who's standing there with Moses? The Lord is. What? How can he pass by and still be there? Well, he is. And I think some of you might know who was standing there with Moses. He stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And verse 6 tells us the Lord passed by. And if you don't know, ask me afterwards. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, watch this. The Lord, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord God. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The Lord. And so here we hear, he starts off, he gives the proclamation of the name. He says right up front, Yahweh. And with it comes the character, the goodness of the Lord God. It's revealed to Moses that he is compassionate, first of all. Some translations say merciful. He is merciful and he's gracious. You know the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we clearly do not deserve. So God is merciful to us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. But He's also gracious in that He gives us what we don't deserve. Compassionate, gracious. He's slow to anger. And that's good news. Some of us could learn from that. Slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. This word loving kindness. You'll find it all throughout Scripture. It's the Hebrew word chesed. If you want to spell that in your notes, it's C-H-E-S-E-D. Chesed. It actually is easier to pronounce if you're having a little sinus trouble. Chesed. And Bible students note this. Where the character of God is concerned, this word is rich in meaning. And it's throughout.
throughout the Old Testament scriptures, it refers to a quality of love. This word loving kindness, hesed. A quality of love and mercy and grace and kindness, specifically where the recipients are completely and wholly unworthy. Unworthy recipients. The first time it's mentioned in the Bible is Genesis 19.19. The first time we see that word hesed. And again, we've talked about that it's good to check out the first mention. If you're unsure about what a word means or what the context of a passage is, if you can trace back and find the first time it's mentioned in Scripture, usually right there gives you a hint as to what the word really means. And so in the first time it's mentioned, we see Lot. And he's speaking to the angels. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew, went down to live in Sodom and Gomorrah? And not a good place to live. Bad choice. And so the angels are getting him out. They are saving his life. Sodom and Gomorrah are being destroyed. And in Genesis 19, 19, Lot says, You have shown loving kindness. Chesed. You have given me a mercy, a grace that I don't deserve. Well, the second time it's mentioned, interesting, is Genesis chapter 24, verses 12 and 14 and 27, three times in that chapter. The servant of Abraham, a man named Eliezer, Eliezer has been sent by Abraham to find a wife for his son Isaac. And so he goes out looking and before he finds her, he kneels by a well and he prays to the Lord, Please show me, show me the right woman, show me the, the right wife for my master's son Isaac. He prays that God would show him in his chesed, his loving kindness. This servant Eliezer says, you know, I'm, not, I'm not worthy of this Lord, but I'm going to ask anyway for you to do something here that is your chesed. Your loving kindness. A third time it's mentioned. Jacob is praying for protection before meeting up with Esau after 20 years of separation. The last time Jacob saw Esau, he basically stole his birthright and made off with it. And Esau was breathing murderous threats against Jacob. That was the last time he saw him or heard from him. 20 years earlier. And now Jacob is, is coming across Esau. He knows that Esau's coming with all of his men. He doesn't know if he's coming to battle him, take him out, murder him. He doesn't know. He's afraid. He's frightened. He begins to pray to the Lord. And he says in Genesis 32.10, I am unworthy of all the chesed. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. See, in every single case now, three times so far we've seen Hesed, and in each one of the three, it's someone who is not worthy to receive the grace. That's Hesed. And the fourth time was more recent to our study. It's Israel. Singing the song of Moses in Exodus 15. They've just gone through the Red Sea. They have been completely saved from the army of Egypt. And they begin singing that song. And they begin thanking God for His loving kindness. His chesed. And on and on and on it goes. And if you want to do a fascinating study in Scripture, look up loving kindness and trace it through Scripture. See how the word is used as related to the Lord. Well, here as God's glory passes by Moses, he defines himself. Each of these words are defining God, and he says, I am defined by loving kindness, by chesed, the unmerited grace nature of God. He also says, abounding, abounding in loving kindness and abounding in truth. You can count on God to be true. They used to tell teenagers all the time, don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. Don't be afraid thinking, well, if I ask a really tough question and can't find the answer in the Bible, boom, there goes my faith. The reality is you can't add, you can't ask a question tough enough that the Bible can't answer. Every question in my life, every time I've come around, every time I've been challenged by someone, and it's happened a lot, where someone's come up after teaching and said, I, I, explain this, or I don't see this, or this is a problem here, 
And if you'll go to the scriptures, you will find the answers are always there because God is abounding in truth. Truth always stands up. And trust me, you guys in high school, you can count on this. You can live by it. And I challenge you to go to it over and over to discover that truth is here. He also says he is forgiving. Forgiving in love. Who keeps loving kindness and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He is lovingly forgiving. And he's utterly and perfectly just. And if you ever feel like things are not just in the world, remember that in one, in one day, you will sing of the justice of God. You will sing. Your own voices will ring out about his judgments being righteous and true. You're quoted singing in Revelation 19 verse 1. Didn't know that you were in the Bible, but you are. John writes, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. There is coming a day when you will be able to look at the whole of human history and go, Wow, He was right. 100% of the time. His judgments were true. He did know what he was doing. Well, this is God's name and his nature. And Moses is blown away. So how does he respond? Verse 8 tells us that Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Now, before I go on to that verse, verse 7 may leave you feeling a little uncomfortable. Because you hear all this really good stuff about God. His compassion, his grace, his loving kindness, his truth, his forgiveness. And then it ends by saying he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. <laughs> Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Which means, Jacob, you are bummed because your father's sins are coming down on you. That's not what it means at all. That's not what it means at all. But if you want to know what it means, you're going to have to come back Sunday because that's when we're going to talk about it. Verse 8. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. This is how Moses responds to seeing the name, to hearing the name, the nature of God. And you need to know that the more you understand the chesed, the loving kindness of the Father, the more you, like Moses, will be a worshiper. Worship is not something that is just commanded and demanded and so we do it. Worship is something that flows out of the heart and the more we know God, the more we love Him, the more we recognize His loving kindness, the more we just want to worship. And I would even submit to you that those who get bored or tired or find worship dull and meaningless to them haven't yet understood fully the chesed, the loving kindness of the Father. For when you begin to grasp how much He loves you, there's no better place to be than in worship. And here's Moses. He, Moses, he's worshiping. It's interesting, and uh, J. Vernon McGee talks about this. In the last three chapters, we see three aspects of Moses. Chapter 32, he's the intercessor, praying on behalf of Israel. Chapter 33, he's the mediator, standing in the gap for Israel. And chapter 34, after he gets God's response of gracious loving kindness, he is now the worshiper. The worshiper. Moses made haste to bow low and worship toward the earth. Psalm 95. Will you flip in your Bibles real quickly there for just a moment? Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verse 1. The psalmist writes and he says, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him, before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. 
For the Lord is a great God. He's the great King above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. And the peaks of the mountain are His also. And the sea is His, for it was He who made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Now watch this. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Why? Why? Because the mountain peaks are His? Because He made the sea? Because He's an awesome, mighty God? No. After saying all that, the psalmist says, Let's worship and bow down, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. I worship the Lord because not because He holds the depths of the earth, but because He holds my heart. Not because He owns the ocean, but because He owns me. Because I am a person of His pasture. I'm a sheep of His the sheep of his hand. Again, it's the loving kindness of God that draws the worshiper to deeper worship. And so if you're distracted in worship, or if you're feeling distant from God in worship, the thing to focus on is what he has been doing. That's why so often on Wednesday nights, by the way, we'll sing for a while, and then we'll just have silence to pray on your own. Not me leading you, saying things for you, you just talking to the Lord yourself. So you can go to that place of understanding his love for you. That's why we worship. Well, back next to this 34. Verse 9, going on, Moses has bowed low to the earth. He's worshipped and he says now, verse 9, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst. Remember from chapter 33, this was the conversation back and forth with Moses and God. God says, you're going without me. Moses says, please don't send us without you. And God says, all right, I'll go with you, Moses, but I'm not going to go with the people. No, Lord, go with all of us or don't go with me at all. Please come with all of us. So he's repeating it again. Let the Lord go along in our midst, even though, even though the people are so obstinate. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us as your own possession. Three things Moses requests here. He requests the presence of the Lord. The presence. Father, don't send us if you're not going to go. We want to rest in, reside in your presence. But to have the presence of the Lord, Moses has the presence of mind to ask for the pardon of the Lord. For he knows you can't be in the presence of the Lord if you're covered in sin. So he says, Lord, pardon us, forgive us of our sins. Yes, he confesses, we're stiff-necked people. Yes, we're sinners. But we want you to go. We need your presence. Pardon us, Father. And then he says something stunning. He says, take us as your own possession. Possession. The presence of the Lord. Moses wants that. The pardon of the Lord. And then he wants to be the possession of the Lord. Make us yours, Father. And I wonder if you've ever done that in your life. Now, I'm not talking about the day you gave your heart to the Lord. I'm not talking about where you said, come and be my Lord and Savior, Jesus. I accept you. I accept your sacrifice. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow you. I want to walk with you. I'm asking, have you ever in your life said, God, from this day forward, I give up my will. I don't want it. I don't want it at all. I don't want to control my life. I don't want to choose what's happening tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. I don't want it. Take it. I want to be your possession. I want your will to be my will. And whatever you want to happen in my life, no matter what it is, good or bad, and we know ultimately it will be good, I want your will, Father. Have you ever just handed it over to the Lord? For you see, you have a free will. Even as a Christian, as a believer, as a child of God, you still have a free will. And God will use as much of that will as you'll give Him. 
But I encourage you to take the risk and step out and say, God, I don't want to control it anymore. I don't want to have a handle on my life. I want you to possess everything about me. You have a free will, but you can also freely give that will up to the Lord. Matthew 26.39, in a stunning statement, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Not my will be done, Father, but yours, your will. I don't want to control this. I want to do what you would have me do. The next morning, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And by afternoon, Luke 23, verse 46 tells us, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And you know what's amazing? Even in his last breath, Jesus was quoting Scripture. Into your hands I commit my spirit, Psalm 31, verse 5 reads. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Jesus, in the last moment of his life, continually is giving up his will. And if you want to give your will completely to the Father, I encourage you to pray, Psalm 35, verse 1. Into your hand I commit my spirit. I don't want control of my life anymore. Giving up the will to be the possession of the Lord. And by the way, it's this last request of Moses. What's the presence, the pardon, the possession? Well, it's this last request, the possession of the Lord, that the Lord responds to in verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. A covenant. A covenant with Israel. An awesome covenant that God says He is going to perform, He's going to carry out with Moses and the people of Israel. You may remember 430 years earlier, Israel, the man... And his sons went down out of the land that God had promised to them into Egypt because of the great famine. It's interesting to me that there was sovereignty in that famine. That God was doing something even then. You know, people alive at the time experiencing the famine may, like George Costanza, who we talked about earlier, may may say, well, now I believe in God because everything's going wrong. Everything's bad, so there must be a God and he's doing it. If you were there in the midst of the famine, it would be easy to, to just think, oh man, why is God doing this? And I, Israel, as he walked down, as he went with his sons down into Egypt, having to leave the land that he had known his whole life, he, I could have thought, at least at some point, what's going on? You promised this land, Father, to Abraham and to my father Isaac, and you promised it to me. You have you've borne out this promise for all these years, and now suddenly we're out of here? Why? What's going on? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. God had a plan in motion. When we studied Genesis, we saw how part of the reason God got them out of that land was the land was getting sick. The sin was going from bad to worse. People sacrificing babies in atrocious ways to God's, And He didn't want that to infect the people of Israel. So He got them out of there. And for 430 years, the sin multiplied and increased and came to its full point, to the boiling point. God at the same time is saying to the inhabitants of the land, He's given them opportunity to repent. Are they? No. They're just going from bad to worse. But God gets His people out of there and tucks them away in the land of Goshen. But now He's doing something else. He's bringing them back, but He's going to do so in a magnificent way. 
Things are going to be done and seen that had not been seen in the earth up until that time. The inhabitants of Canaan were going to be freaked out. They were going to see firsthand who this God was. This scraggly people of Israel, these slaves who ran away from Egypt and somehow defeated an army with an ocean and now are coming into the land, were going to take control of the land. And God was going to do that. God was going to lead the people. And He's going to do so with awesome fearful things in their midst. In Genesis 15-18, looking back again, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He said, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And I just need to make this quick point. Anyone who today wants to argue the place of Israel in the land is not arguing with man or history. They will be arguing with God because God gave the land to the people. And I, for one, just want to go on record as saying I am completely opposed to the pullout of the Gaza Strip because that is Israel's land. It was given to them by the Lord. And we can go all into the history of that and perhaps we will sometime soon. But do you realize that, and some of you know this, Israel has yet to even fully realize the land that God promised to them? From the great river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, that land that God had planned out, that He said, I'm giving this land to you, Abraham. Isaac, this land is yours. Jacob, to your descendants. They will have this land. Israel has only ever held 30,000 square miles of what God promised, which was 300,000 square miles. Israel's only ever held, at the height of Solomon's reign, 10% of what God promised they would have well God was going to do magnificent amazing things but I personally think there's some prophetic in here in this verse that the Lord is saying I'm going to do things that have never been done never been seen before one of those one of those was 1948 in this generation when Israel became a nation again who had ever seen that that had never happened before that a nation goes completely extinct and then is resurrected to life that a language Hebrew would be completely lost and then a dead language come back to life and be the spoken language in Israel today God is already doing amazing things He is continuing this process and at the end of time which I as many of you know believe we are close to He is going to do things that have never been done before fearful and mighty and awesome things now I'm going to read down to verse 28 and just make a couple of comments and we'll be done tonight but I just want you to follow along for a minute Verse 11, God says, Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself, that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their ashram. This is the first mention, by the way, of ashram in the Bible. You'll see it mentioned quite a bit after this. The Asherah poles. We'll talk about that another time. But you shall not worship any other god, verse 14. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. Then you might take some of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall not make, or you shall make for yourself, no molten gods. 
Verse 18, You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you. At the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. Verse 19, The first offspring from every womb belongs to me and all your male livestock. The first offspring from cattle and sheep. And you shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will drive out the nations before you And enlarge your borders And no man shall covet your land When you go up three times a year To appear before the Lord your God Verse 25 You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice With leavened bread Nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover To be left over until morning And you shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil Into the house of the Lord your God You shall not boil a young goat In its mother's milk And then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. This is conditional then. As you keep these, so I will keep faith with you, Israel. So I will protect you and do as I've said. Verse 28, So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets of the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. That's a lot of law. That's a lot to remember right there. We've gotten moved into our house and I am just now starting to get a handle on all the bills. I mean, they're everywhere. Every time I turn around, there's one that needed to be paid and we forgot that one. And you know what I did? You want to know what I did? This is how mixed up my mind has been since we moved into the house. I was on top of things and I I sent in for our little uh, renewal for the sticker for the back of our car. You know, on the little license plate renewal thing for the... the, uh, yeah, the car tags. Okay, I don't even know what they're called. So I sent in for them ahead of time. I got them back. I'm thinking I'm doing a good thing. I got the tabs. I take the tab out. I go and I stick it right on the back back license plate of my car. A little red Ford Focus, and I put the the little you know <laughs> the registration thing. I put that in my office, and everything was good. And then I realized, oh, I need to have the registration in my car. So I went and got it and put it in my car. And then last night, Cheryl and I are driving on to the base. And, of course, you know, the military guy stopped me there, and I'm thinking, you know, you could use all this energy to find Osama bin Laden rather than talk to me, but that's okay. It's all right. I'm being patient. And so we're talking at the base, and, and the guy says, well, do you have registration? I pull it out, and it's uh, from 2004. Well, that's not good. <laughs> so I said, well, I, you know, the tag's on the back. He said, well, let me see your license. And I gave him my license. He ran, went around to the back, and he came back and said, uh, sir... Your tags are expired, and I can't let you on the base because it's illegal to drive a car with expired tags in the state of Washington. I'm like, duh. Really? You know, it's illegal in just about every other state I know of, too, but thanks a lot, pal. Appreciate talking to you, Colonel Sanders. So I drove off. I'm sorry, I'm being a little disrespectful, but I was, I was going, come on, I can't believe this. I was trying to figure out what's going on. How could we have missed the tags? I know I did the t- Oh, no. What I did was I took the tags that I had gotten for our van and stuck them on our car. Yeah, yeah. I can't keep track of stuff. I just can't keep track of things. 
and I read this list and I go, I would be sunk. I would be sunk. If, if I had to keep these laws that God's laying out here, and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. God has just shown his name and his nature to the Lord, or to Moses. He's just revealed who he is. He's shown his loving kindness, his hesed that we talked about, his grace, his compassion. And then for the whole last part of this chapter, he goes, law, 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 law. To the point where I'm going, how do they remember to do all these things? Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Boy, I'm glad I read that one. Because I'd miss it, you know? I just I'd stick the tag on the back of the car and go up boiling. That's what I would do. How do you what I don't understand, Lord, why are you doing this? Why is the Lord pushing this on the people after he said, I am a God of loving kindness and grace? And here's the reason. The renewal of this covenantal relationship that God desires with Israel is not about his nature. It's about theirs. It's not about him and what he needs or desires. It's about what they need. He understands that this people, like me, are scatterbrained. Especially when it comes to sin. And most of us are. We're scatterbrained when it comes to sin. And so God replaces the tablets of stone. He renews the covenant with Moses and Israel all for the purpose of drawing them into relationship building tools. That's what the law is. Tools to build relationship. Now Israel got confused over the years and turned it into tools that they thought built righteousness and they never did. The law can never make you righteous but what it can do for you is it can develop relationship. By keeping the law. Not to save yourself. Man, you have that with grace. But by reading the word. By studying these things. By seeking to know the Lord better and understand why he does what he does. Why he says what he says. You draw closer to him. They're relationship building tools. Jesus said in John 14.21 He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He's the one who loves me. How do, I, how do you know a person loves Jesus? Man, because they will do anything to get close to Him. They keep the commandments not because they think that makes them all holy. As a matter of fact, the more you keep the commandments, the more you know you can't keep the commandments. But we follow the Word of God and we study to know the Word of God because it draws us into a relationship with God. And Jesus says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love Him and will disclose myself to Him. So not only does the keeping of the law, the studying of the word, help me draw closer in relationship, but Jesus promises as I do so, he's going to disclose more and more of himself to me. And John says in 1 John 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Well, how do I do that? How can I possibly? How can I keep his commandments? Gang, I don't do it to prove my righteousness. I do it to pour myself into a relationship with God. That's what it's about. That's why we continue to study in the book of Exodus. That's why God laid these laws out for the people. He said, you know, you're going to go into the land and I'm going to give you some tools, some ways that you can stay close to me, stay connected, 
some, some purposeful things in your life. Some of the laws, as we get into Leviticus, you'll see, they're just to protect the people. But other laws are for the purpose of just drawing them close to Him. Look back at verse 12 one last time and look at what He said. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going or it will become a snare in your midst. God doesn't want anything to come between Him and the people. And that's the point. Let nothing come between you and the Father. That's what these laws were for. To keep everything else out of the way. Covenants with people in the land, with with pagans, that could eventually drive them in a wrong direction. And that's practical for us. And we'll end on this. Business dealings, friendships, relationships, contacts you have with other people. Paul says, don't try to unite Christ with Belial. Be careful even what your associations are. And that doesn't mean you look down your nose at somebody who's not a Christian. But it does mean that you watch who you hook up to. Who you connect yourself with. Why? Because it may prove to be a stumbling block between you and the Father. God wants to wrap His loving kindness around us. His hesed. That we may know Him and like Moses call upon the name of the Lord with nothing in the way. And Father, that's our prayer tonight. That we could live lives where things that seem to get in the way would just be blown out of the way by your loving kindness. Fathers, we study your word and seek to know you. And to live by the things that we learn. We do so, Lord, because we do share the heart of Moses. That we want to know you. When we sin, show me your glory. When we say, Lord, we want to know you more. This relationship with you that, that is still so amazing to me. It's what we want. And so like the people, you've given us tools. Help us to use these tools to walk closer to you, to be united with you, to abide with you, to keep your commandments and, and, and thereby proving, showing how much we love you. Father, hold us close to your heart. And I pray the devil could not snatch a single one of us out of your hands. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your loving kindness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.